0: Hello, welcome to Evidence for Faith. I am so glad you're joining me today as we continue in our series on Christian living, um, taking a biblical worldview and taking the Bible itself and applying it to our lives. That's what this series is about. And so, it's having to do with the pillar of our of the Bible, and also um, we're going to get into a passage today, which is Ephesians chapter five, verses twenty two through about 33. But this one is entitled, as you probably already know since you clicked on it, God's Guidelines to Marriage. And there are some practical things here, some great logic and great truths. Again, these are pillars of our of our four pillars that we have of evidence for faith, the pillar of Bible and the pillar of logic and truth. And we're going to be looking at these today as we go through this. Uh, and because marriage is... Always in the topics anymore. It's always in discussions, often in debates, it seems like, anymore, too. But what does God's word say to us about how to have a good marriage and what a marriage is, et cetera? What can we learn and, and what can we apply to our lives to help our marriages? Now, I want to just make a statement here at the beginning. I'll probably say it a few more times. I am not a licensed marriage counselor. No, I'm a biologist by trade. Um yes, I'm an ordained minister, but and I study the Bible and stuff, but I'm I'm a biologist. I think along those lines as being a scientist. But this is a lesson that um even though I'm not a marriage counselor, I I often have people who come to me asking me for marital advice. I've counseled some people. Usually I try and send them on to some very well-known and good friends of mine who are licensed marriage counselors, but sometimes I've um, I've just, you know, spot questions and things, and I want to give you some some insight about marriage. And it's not going to be so much from my perspective, though I'll use some stories of illustrations. But we're going to get into the Word of God and explore it carefully. So, with that, let's open in prayer. We'll begin, Father God. We thank you so much for each who um, each of those who are joining us today, as we explore your Word and the truth and logic that we see in your word to help us in our marriages. And we pray, Lord, for those who are married or those who are just even dating or just even teens thinking about getting married, that you would give us, uh, use this lesson and and give us guidelines and wisdom on how we should handle marriage. What is your design for? it? So we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. I was about to start biology class one day with my ninth grade students when one of my students, right at the beginning of class, one of my students asked me, what was a good age to get married? Well, I told her that, well, you, you see, age is not a major factor uh, when you're out of school, and but there's so many other factors that must be addressed by both parties, I said. Now, the girl who asked the question then stated, and I'll never forget this, I think I'm ready to get married. <laughs> this was freshman biology. This girl's 14 years old. And uh, when, when I replied that she was too young to even begin to think that way, she responded, I have been through a lot in my 14 years and I believe I can handle anything that comes up with marriage. Well, I still keep in contact with this, uh, this student and today that student has been married twice Um, and is presently a single mom with three children. Uh, Not too long ago, um, got to talk to her, and um, I reminded her of this conversation. We got just talking about old times, and I happened, do you remember having this conversation? She said, oh, yes, I remember it. And she says, and I'll quote, boy, was I naive, unquote. Um, Marriage is, is something that requires work, but the Bible gives a guidebook. On every detail in life, including marriage. In the Word of God, God addresses each, I do believe, each avenue of life's experience, including marriage. And on this subject of marriage, he has a lot to say. Now, we don't have time in just one session here um, to dissect every passage in Scripture on this, but the intent of this lesson, the intent is to give you some basic guidelines to help you see. From God's perspective, what marriage is and how to have a successful marriage. Now, a lot of this uh, that I'm going to be giving you is is a lesson that I give to people that I um, perform the wedding ceremony for. And I try and give them this information beforehand because this is important stuff and it's straight from the word of God. It's not This is not original. I'm just giving you what God's word says and trying to explain what God's word says on this. So to begin with, where did marriage come from? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, Since every civilization in human history has this institution, uh, though some have polygamy, yes, uh, a marriage since ancient history was primarily a contract between a male and a female. Marriage was designed by God, and actually it is based upon his character, as recorded in Genesis. In Genesis 2:24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is indeed designed upon the character of God. Do you understand what I mean by this? The character of God. We have a triune God. There's God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Notice three aspects. In marriage, we also have a triune system. Um, uh, We call it a family, and it's composed of the husband, the wife, and the children. So you see this triune nature, which is based upon the triune nature of God. Marriage is an intimate and personal relationship between a man and a woman. Um, It's been called a union. It's been called a partnership. Actually, what they are that I try to emphasize when I counsel people in marriage, it's uh, you're a team. Marriage is a team. And a team must work together to have success. And yes, again, marriage, a good marriage, takes work. But today, marriage is in trouble. Not only have governments redefined its definition and what marriage constitutes, it has lost a lot of appeal to many in this generation. To some, it's just a, quote, uh, trial and run, trial run type of, of thing. It's it's just a, a test, if you will. They, they will try, um, they're going to try marriage, but um, some people will make legal prenuptial agreements even before entering it to clear up any problems that may develop upon its failure. I look at that and I think, in other words, these people, they're entering into marriage with a sense that it may not work for them. I mean, to do that. There are others who see that marriage is like an antique. Still others will say, no, I'm going to follow the biblical worldview on this and see that marriage was intended to be a permanent commitment and contract. And that's why we say until death do us part. In any age, um, marriage has been something that's always been a, uh, basically between a male and a woman. and But often throughout time, they many times don't last. and there There are problems with that. And today we live in an age where we uh, celebrate celebrities um, almost to a um, to the status of of worship that we are we think so highly of celebrities and let them guide us and give us um, in, their insight and we sort of take it as like scripture in some ways, and to me that's some of the worst examples you can get because we can see that celebrities often have failures in marriage. Um, you don't believe me? Just listen to a couple of famous celebrities. Uh, and how many times they've been married. Um, For instance, Christy Brinkley, Barbara Walters, William Shatner, Frank Sinatra, Gina Davis. They've all been married four times. Uh, James Cameron, Pamela Anderson, George Foreman, the great actor, Henry Fonda, Joan Collins, Joan O'Brien, one of my favorite actresses, Kenny Rogers, great Clark Gable, Rita Hayworth, Dennis Hopper, Billy Bob Thornton. Married five times. Each one married five times. The beautiful Hetty Lamar and Gail, Gra- Gail O'Grady. And also Tony Curtis. Married six times. Jerry Lee Lewis and Richard Pryor were married seven times. Elizabeth Taylor, Lana Turner, Larry King, Mickey Rooney. They all got married eight times. And then, are you ready? The beautiful Jennifer O'Neill and Zsa, Zsa Gabor married 9 times how many failures have we just looked at from celebrities and why do we let why do so many people let celebrities have this like worship status that we think on and anything that they say anything that comes out of their mouth concerning social attitudes and society and stuff we believe oh they're the they're the experts no they're not this proves on marriage that they're not the best sources to look at i believe that too often people seem Focus on the illusion or the fantasy in marriage of like finding the perfect romantic and sexual partner. The problem is if this is found, if that's what you're after and you do find it, it's not going to last long. The perfect body, the perfect face are all subject to the laws of thermodynamics, in which entropy always increases as time goes on. If I've confused you by that, let me put it in other words. As time goes on, systems break down. Skin breaks down, collagen breaks down, your organs break down. For example, a new car doesn't get more beautiful as time goes on, but will decrease in beauty as it ages. So what are we supposed to look for? I mean, God gives us a warning on this. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30, out of the God's Word translation, to make it a little bit more easy to understand, it reads, charm is deceitful, beauty evaporates. But a woman who has the fear of the Lord should be praised. Right there we get a little hint of men, what we should be looking for when we look for a wife. In counseling many people over the years, I've heard so many reasons uh, people give for choosing beauty and physical appearance as the key element to finding a spouse. Now, as I just said, because of entropy, things break down. This unfortunately, is a very poor choice method for finding a mate because, as God says in Proverbs, beauty evaporates. You don't believe me? (laughs) Have you seen a picture of the actress? I'm not making fun of her. I'm just using an example here of just the biology of how things are. Have you ever seen a picture of uh, a recent picture of the actress Tina Louise who played Ginger in Gilligan's Island? Take a look at her picture today. You can Google it or whatever. Take a look at what she looks like today. And then look at a picture when back in the early 60s, when that series Gilligan's Island started and how she looked there. I mean, they don't, those pictures do not look the same. It's the same person, but. Beauty evaporates. It does. Or take a look. I'm just not going to pick on women here. Let's take a look at a very handsome guy, Clint Eastwood. Back in the 1960s, he was in a TV series. He was the star of a TV series called Rawhide. Look at him in pictures when he's on that that uh, series and then compare what he looks like today. I just watched a uh, uh, brand-new Clint Eastwood movie just uh, a couple of weeks ago. And thinking back, wow, has he changed from the way he looked in rawhide. And the thing is, it's not that the people want to change like that. This is what the law of thermodynamics has, uh, that, uh, applies to us. We we break down. Another problem that frequently develops when two people can't live up to each other's expectations, that's another one. People just don't live up to the expectations of others. Um, this This then causes one or both people, and this is what the problem is a lot of times in these celebrity things that I was mentioning before, they start looking for their next relationship or experience. What are they looking for? They're looking for excitement. They're looking for fantasy as they hunt for satisfaction. The problem is that this path regularly leads only to self-destruction and emptiness. Just look at these examples I gave you of celebrities. God instructs us to be absolutely devoted to our spouse, not looking around for the next experience, not doing anything like that. I remember years ago, a former student of mine called me up uh, seeking some counsel. Now this Christian gal who was quite close to me back in the days when she was uh, my student, uh, contacted me wanting some advice. She told me that she had always admired how uh, I got along with my wife, Denise. She knew Denise pretty well, too. Um, Even when times were tough, she told me that she always admired how the two of us, even in difficult times, how the two of us always got along. And she told me that she was now engaged to be married and wanted to know the secret. What was the secret of a good marriage? She viewed that Denise and I had a very good marriage. Wanted to know what the secret was. Now, I was caught a little bit off guard by this phone call. It came out of the blue. And as I'm trying to scramble through my mind, okay, what can I tell her is a secret to marriage? I'm, I quickly replied that, well, you see, marriage is not one person seeking t- uh, the other person as the fulfillment for their needs. I said, you can't go into marriage thinking that this person is going to fulfill all of your needs. I said, a, a good marriage is one in which, this is specific, each spouse in the marriage tries to outserve the other. It's necessary that both both parties, both spouses, do this. That's one of the secrets. If you can get this person you're going to marry, I told her, if 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 he can be, um, in this mindset, and if you can be in this mindset, this really helps a lot. Um, I told her that both people need to deny their own wants and desires, and to focus solely on the de- on the desires and the needs of the other person. I said, in like in dating, you know, you dated other people, and and even today, when we date people and people who are on going on dates and stuff, um, in dating, each person often makes a major effort to fulfill the needs of an of the other and to honor the other. How many times guys will open up car doors or open up doors for the girls? Um, they'll pay for their meal. They'll um, they they go over the edge sometimes trying to be you know fulfilling and and honoring to the other person well that's great there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever but the thing is that shouldn't change once a ring gets put on the finger that shouldn't change in marriage in marriage my friends each of you must try to outserve the other that's what i told her on the phone i said if each keeps their focus on the other you're gonna find that you'll have fewer arguments and quarrels developing in your lives. This will also help you keep true to each other as long as you both walk with the Lord. Now remember, I was speaking to a Christian gal who was marrying a Christian guy. And I said, these are the things that I can tell you. Let's talk about that for a second, devotion to your spouse. Devotion to your spouse is so important in marriage. You see, each person totally relinquishes any other person in their past or their future to intensely focus on their spouse. In the great book of wisdom written for young people, Solomon tells us in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always. In her love. Husbands, wives need to realize that marriage involves forsaking any other love or interest. Past relationships, when one was dating or seeking a mate, those days are over when you get married. Now they are solely to be committed to their spouse and to God. God first, then their spouse. How many marriages, I think, would be saved if just those two steps? were always present. How would society, I wonder, be changed if marriages were sacred? The Lord gives us, as I said at the beginning, this is one of our pillars, looking to the word of God and the truth and the logic. And the Lord does give us some great directives on how wives and husbands are to live in a marriage. One of the best sets of instructions that can be found, you'll find in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this is our passage that we're going to be looking at. And we're going to examine this passage and the wisdom, the truth, uh, the logic that you find in here concerning marriage. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5, it's verses 22 through 33. I'm going to read this out of the English Standard Version, which is a word-for-word translation, because we're going to get into studying the words. That's why I want to use a word-for-word translation for this. It reads, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There is a lot of information here. A lot of great truth and wisdom. Sometimes it's a little hard for some people to to read it and to take hold of it and to apply it to their lives. But this is what God is giving us. God is giving us directions on how a marriage should work here. Now, Paul begins this passage basically talking to the wise. He gives a message to the wise. He gives a message to the husband. Then he makes a summary at the end. But here he outlines to the wives God's divine direction and directive for the wife's role. This is what it said. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, these two verses have been taken out of context so often that it is left a soul, a sour taste in many females' mouths. Added to this bitter flavor is this one word called submit, that wives are to submit. And the word submit has been defiled here um, in modern times. And if you take the way the word is defined in modern times, the word submit, we don't like that. That becomes a negative word. I remember even having a female college students once tell me, Um, that it was those two verses in the Bible that were reason enough for her to discard her Bible forever. Now, what is really God saying here that wives should submit? Is the submission, is this um, submission giving permission for a man to beat and treat his wife shamefully because she disappoints him somehow? Is, Is God giving permission for the husband to treat his wife like a rug? Is God saying that the wife has no say in anything and must be a slave to her husband? Listen carefully. The answer to all those is no. That is not what God is saying. That word submit. Wow. Well, let's let's look at this word carefully. The word submit. uh, But let's look at it not in the English definition. Remember, the New Testament came to us in Greek. So. Let's go back to the Greek word that is used here. It's the Greek word um, hupotasso. That's the word for, for submit, hupotasso. Now hupotasso, for those of you who don't know, it's a compound word. It's hupo and then tasso. Hupo means to be under something. Oh, this should not be familiar to you. We get the word hypo from it. Like a hypodermis means to go under the skin or a hypotonic solution is one that is undersaturated. Uh, hypostasis is uh, stasis is when a sediment settles at the bottom of a fluid. Tasso, on the other hand, means to draw up in order or to arrange, to arrange things, to put them in their assigned station, to line things up correctly. Like when you go to a restaurant, you don't see the ketchup bottle on one side of the table, mustard on the other, salt over here and everything randomly placed. Waitresses and, um, and stuff will organize things. They will put tasso to it. They will put them in their place, in a place where they're supposed to be set. That's what that is talking about. So when you combine the two together, the word tasso" that's what we commonly just call submit. But the thing is today, submit is a negative word. But you know, in Greek, it was a positive word. A positive word. It wasn't negative at all. Because today we use the word submit and we think of inferior. That is not the definition of hupotasso. Hupotasso does not mean inferior. Not at all. As the word um, submit means today, that is not it. It means to be placed in order in a certain arrangement. For instance, give you an example to show you how, how clear this is. Jesus, scripture tells us that Jesus submitted to the Father. Jesus was Hupotasso to the Father. Now, who is going to say that Jesus's station was inferior or was negative to the Father? We would, we would never think that. The wife should not be viewed that way either, then. That's not that the way that word is said. yes, it's sad that we've translated it and in, uh, into the word "submit" and um, made it at a, a very negative and inferior word. A lot of times, it's used like um, to submit means inferior. That's not what God is saying. When God is saying when He says, why submit to your um, husbands as to the Lord," what's going on here is God's setup of the marriage system. The husband is the head of the family, and the wife. Uh, And by the way, we'll get more to the husband in a few minutes. The wife is subject to her husband, but subject in this way, in the exact same manner as Jesus was subjective and submissive to his father. That is not a negative at all. No, this does not imply the wife is of lesser value. Hupotasso, the wife is not inferior. She is not of lesser value. Hupotasso is talking like with Jesus and God. It's talking about the Trinity here, the Triune God. And the thing is, it's a team. Like it's a, it's that's a bad way to afraid to uh, describe God, but um, it's in a marriage, it's a team. It's the way we look at it, and every team needs a leader. God has appointed that the man is the head of the team, is what we're talking about here. He's the head of the team. And by the way, men, you're going to have to answer before God on the way you treat your team member, your wife. I mean, just put it on a sports metaphor. Sports teams have captains, do they not? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the other players are not important or lesser value. I mean, (laughs) all the players are very important. That's what that is. By the way, some sports teams do not appoint their most talented players as their captains. Um, But they appoint the one that is most capable to lead. I have served on sports teams like that, that the the star player was not the captain. It was somebody else who seemed to be um, not as good as a player as the others. But the thing is, he had remarkable leadership skills. He was the team leader. He was the captain. Thus, submitting does not refer to the worth of a person. See, we look at it this way, that way today, that's the way we look at it, but that's not the way God is telling us this in his word. Submitting is also a voluntary response. It's a voluntary response to God's will because God is designing this. Submitting is voluntarily yielding their own rights to focus on their husbands. That's what this is saying, and allowing the husband to lead. This is the same way a church body follows a pastor. You wouldn't say the members of the church are inferior or they're negative, and only the pastor is, you know, the that becomes the dictator. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Just like the church members voluntarily follow the pastor, the wife is voluntarily to follow her husband and everything. Now, listen carefully to this. This does not mean that the wife cannot have a voice. <laughs> A wise husband will listen to and honor his wife. Actually, we're supposed to do that. In my own case, my wife, Denise, she's very smart. I married somebody. I, I always wanted to, to marry somebody who was smarter than me. Well, that? There was a lot of people out there for that one. But I, I, I married Denise, and because she is so smart, I would be a fool not to listen to her because her insights often hit the bullseye of practical things much more than I do. Because of my respect and the way I honor her, I listen and weigh carefully what she says. I, I always want her opinion on things. Now, I may take her advice and move forward with it because it's good advice, or there have been times where I believe that following my idea was more suited for the success for both of us because we are a team. When that happens, where I, I turn away her advice, and go on my own, what she does is she steps aside and allows me to lead as God has commanded her. That's what we're talking about here. Notice, too, that in this passage, there's something here a lot of people miss when God says wives should submit in everything to their husband. It's that word everything. What's that got to do with anything? The word everything in the Greek here is the word "pas." Paz means the whole of all of it, everything. And if she's supposed to submit in everything, do you notice that that gives her the responsibility of having input in everything? How about that, huh? Most people don't think that way. Husbands often just become like the dictator. No, that's not what this is. God has designed it. You, You listen to her. She has insight. And it says here in everything. So she's got her opinion. God has given her a brain and a wise man is going to listen to her. The late brilliant uh, theologian Charles Erdman in his commentary on Ephesians here, he wrote this uh, concerning this, this very aspect. Mere listless, thoughtless subjection is not desirable if ever possible. The quick wit, the clear moral discernment the fine instincts of a wife will make of her a counselor whose influence is invaluable and almost unbounded. I really like that. Erdman is telling us about this word, uh, pause, and how the wives submit to everything. She has insight. A wise husband will allow her to have input in all matters. He should value this opinion then very, very highly. Not dismiss it because he's simply the one in charge. A person who has given wise advice and fails to listen is a fool. Now, the next part of this passage is addressed to the husbands. Yeah, now God has put on the husbands here. I mean, most men, I know, memorize those first two verses that we just went over about the wives' role, but they often neglect what follows this. Um, God puts upon the man, uh, the husband, quite a load of responsibility. Look what it just says here, starting in verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, right there, that's an important and overlooked passage. Husbands will frequently, they'll quote to me 22, 23, 24 on the wife's role, but they're often blind to the rest of this passage. In my opinion, the husbands have the hardest role to fulfill in God's design in marriage. Nowhere in this verse nowhere in this verse is the command for the uh, given for the husbands to bark orders or yell at their wives you will not find anywhere you know god says man has the right to yell and scream at their wife. you don't see that it's not there we're not to treat them as lesser citizens not what that uh, we're supposed to you know it's it's Tasso. they're not lesser citizens we don't treat them like slaves we don't treat them as their inferior A husband is told to love his wife in the exact same manner and method as Jesus loves us, his church. How many marriages would be saved and see less difficulties if the husbands did just that one command? The way that you love your wife is the same way that Jesus loves you. How does he treat you? That's how you're supposed to treat your wife. Now, the word here for love is the Greek word agapeo. Agapeo. Now, that's the word definition. Uh, the definition of this word is for unconditional love. It's unconditional. Did you get that? Do you understand what I'm saying? It means to love without reason. It means to love without stipulation. Men, it means to love her without prerequisite, to love her without restrictions, to to love her without conditions. It's more than a family love or an erotic love or a passionate love. This is sacrificial love. It's the type of love Christ gave us and gives us the type of love christ loves the church with christ surrendered himself he left his place of glory he came down as a lowly servant messiah he surrendered himself for us the church that's how we're supposed to do this husbands are to love their wives by giving up everything he has for his wife even if it means his life, because that's what Christ did. Now, how do husbands do this? The husband is to put aside his own likes, his own desires, his own opinions, his own likings, his well-being, happiness, and his interests to please his wife, because that's what Christ does for us. He is to meet her needs, and deny his own needs and wants. Christ left his lofty place in heaven, being submissive to the Father to come down, take on human flesh, be mistreated, be spat upon, be spit upon, beaten, slapped, mistreated over and over. That was the command. That's what the Father wanted him to do. That is the type of love. This, folks, men, this is a command from God. And the wife is to put herself under the husband's leadership. Yes, but the husband has to agapeo his wife. I'm going to repeat that because that's so important. Yes, the wife puts herself under the husband's leadership in the team, but the husband must agapeo, unconditionally love his wife. In this passage, Paul wrote eight specific duties for the husband to do. Eight specific duties. It's, he said that, and this is God doing this. This is the Holy Spirit under the influence, uh, uh, Paul under the influence of the Holy Spirit, giving us this information. The Holy Spirit tells us to give himself up for her. This means putting your wife's desires and needs first. The Holy Spirit tells us to sanctify her, that men were supposed to cleanse her that we're supposed to uh, present her in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle. We are to make her holy, he says, to be without blemish. And by the way, that means never to cause a blemish on your wife. Under no circumstances is the husband to beat his wife, to make a mark on her. He is to make her holy, to nourish her, it says also. That's a that's a really tall order for, for men. I, I really it is. We got to do things to help keep her sanctified, to keep her holy. Now these are helping the wife to remain pure and holy to the Lord. That's the purpose here. The husband does not ask the wife to do anything that would make her unclean or not suited to be in the presence of a holy God. Did you get that, guys? We are never to ask our wife to do anything, anything that would make her unclean or not suited to be able to stand in the presence of holy God. Thus, you are never to defile her. You are never to expose her to anything that might damage in any way her relationship with God. Instead, husbands are to help her grow in her relationship to God. I told you this is a tall order. The husband is responsible not to argue with her on subjects that he knows also that she is sensitive to. In other words, if you know something that really Ill, um, will push her buttons, you don't push your buttons, guys. These are the responsibilities of the husband that God gives us. Men, if you really love your wife, listen carefully. If you really love your wife, you will do everything in your power to help her meet those characteristics that were just listed. Every single day she's alive. There's an eighth one I didn't mention, but it's here. The Holy Spirit tells us that men were supposed to cherish her. That means, husbands, we are to love her and cherish her in the exact same manner as Christ loves and cherishes us, We, the believers, the church. The word cherish in the Greek here is thalpo, which it means, I love the I love the illustration of this word in Greek. It means to add warmth and comfort to. It's the same word that is used in Greek literature of a bird sitting on a nest, warming her eggs. That's how we're supposed to be to our wives. This means to cherish is to provide a secure, a warm, a safe place for your wife when a wife needs strength when she's tired or if she needs encouragement if she's depressed it's the husband that is obligated by God's command to provide it as best he can for her because that's what Christ does for us next Paul gives us insight from God on the permanence of marriage in verse 31, he says, "Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This, he's quoting Genesis here, Genesis 2:24, um, Paul is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he's giving us what God is saying, this is a bond that is unbreakable. That's what it is. It's a permanence bond. Um, and this is God's standard, and it's based upon his character because it's based upon his character. It's permanent. As the Trinity is unbreakable, so should married married people be. They should be um, in marriage until separated by death. Husbands, we should help our wives to rest assured in the fact that she is totally secure in your love and in your marriage. She should always feel safe and warm and comforted in that marriage. Oh, how I wish more married couples would realize that their marriage is a testimony and a demonstration of the relationship between Christ and believers. Now, as we get to the end of this, this message that I'm lesson I'm doing here today has. There's one more command, and I want to make sure we hit this. I mean, there's so much more we could do, but we're just looking at this one passage here. It reads, "Let the wife see that she respects her husband." Now, as I said, I'm not a marriage counselor. People have at times sought me out for help, and I have counseled many troubled couples over the past. Uh, one thing that I've discovered in such situations is that the wife many times disrespects her husband in public and, I'm I'm told, in the home also. Ladies, let me tell you something. Disrespecting your husband is one of the most emasculating things you can do to him. The Greek here, um, the word here for um, respect that we see in the Greek in the New Testament is phobeo. Uh, phobeo means to revere or to be in awe of. To most men, believe it or not, to most men, this is what they want more from their wife than any other thing. They want respect. That's one of the key things that is just built into our, our character. We want respect. But men, let me remind you of something. Respect is a two-way street. It needs Yes, it needs to be given from your wife, no question about that. But you must be honorable enough to get it. So in a way, the last command is actually directed at both the husband and the wife. Yes, the wife must respect them. But husbands, you better act in a way always that is worthy of respect. (laughs) This reminds me of a time, let me just finish with this. Reminds me of a time when I was teaching in a high school where next door to my room was the Spanish teacher's room. Now, this Spanish teacher that the school had uh, this year, uh, she was a brand new teacher, right out of college. Now, she knew her material really well. She could speak Spanish fluently, but she had no idea of how to control and run her classroom. She had no classroom management skills whatsoever. She tried various methods to get the students to like her and to respect her. She sort of put the two of them together, to like and respect, and she came in, every day trying to get them to do this. But all they ever did was make fun of her. They caused her grief every single day because she was just treating them in a way disrespectfully. But then one day, this just stands out in my mind, one day I noticed that she came to school Drove up by, by the school opening by the door there um, as I was watching out my window. And I saw that she came in with, um, opened up the back of her car and had two big long, uh, grocery bags, big grocery bags, just full of stuff. Well, I went over to give her a hand uh, to help carry her in, these things in. And she had more of them in her car, just bags of candies and sweets. That's what these things were. I was thinking, and she do it in a party or something? Um, and I noticed that she had one. For each class that she taught, she actually had written on the thing, you know, first hour, you know, third hour, et cetera, et cetera. So she had a bag, one bag for each one of the classes. At the beginning of each class that day, she did something. She had written up a contract, printed it off, and it was a contract to be between her and that specific class. And it was all about that they will treat her with respect. So she handed it at the beginning of each class when the students came in. She gave them this contract, read the contract, and had them sign it. And they all did. They all agreed. Because if they did, she says, if you sign the contract, you guys can have the candy. If you don't sign the contract, I'm not going to give it to you. Well, those students, (laughs) those high school students, all signed the contract. Of course they did. Each of her classes signed the contract and she gave them all the treats. That day they just sat back and they had a party, basically eating and stuff like this. And she thought, now, Um, Her troubles were over, and her students would like and respect her because she had it written on paper. Oh, I just, throughout the day, just kept shaking my head as I would walk past her room. Oh, my gosh, what a mess this was. Um, The next day, each class was even more disruptive, more mean, more disrespectful to her. At the end of that next day, I walked into her room after school and found her sitting in a corner sobbing. I went over to comfort her, and I I, uh, I um, told her, you know, or I asked her what was going on, you know, what how she was feeling and stuff. And um, she said, I, I really thought that these students would respect me now. I mean, they signed a contract, but it didn't work. So she asked me, are you ready for this? She asked me, would you please tomorrow come and in, come into my class at the beginning of each class and tell my students that they have to respect me? Sadly, I told her, I couldn't do that. I said, respect, you know, I could tell the kids that, but it means nothing. I said, respect has to be earned. You just tried buying off your students. You just insulted your students. Sure, they're going to sign the contract and take your treats, but you just made them mad with trying to bribe them. And told her respect has to be earned. There's a lesson in here for us too, husbands in particular. If you want the respect of your wife, you better live a life worthy of respect. Wives, God tells you, that you must, you must respect him, especially in public. Father God, we thank you for this lesson and the time we've had here today. And, oh, there's so much more you can tell us in your word on this. But I just wanted to get this little passage here. I felt compelled to get this out there because so many people struggle in their marriage. So many marriages are in trouble today. And a lot of it is because we're not following your guidelines, the truth from your word. And, Lord, I pray that you help marriages like this get in contact with um, really good Christian marriage counselors to help them get the help that they need. That our lives and our marriages can be, you know, great witness tools and be honoring to you, oh God. You set up the institution. Help us, Lord, to be good witnesses by living in the institution in the way you made it. So thank you for all who are listening and help us all because we we certainly need it in this day and age. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me today on this lesson. And um, I hope that this has helped you out. And again, maybe you want to look at scripture, the other passages and stuff. But I do encourage you, um, maybe as a couple, sit down and take a look at this together and um, listen to it together. Or just open up, at least open up the word. Uh, together and just examine this, particularly those who are thinking about getting married um, or the ones who are, are, you know, like newlyweds, good lessons from your word we can see here. So thanks for joining me. And until we meet again, take care and may God bless.